Good morning, Veritas. You guys, was that just a powerful moment right there, having the scripture just read over you? I mean, it, I found myself like not breathing at times, like, oh, you know, just the intensity of the, of the Bible just read to us, the power of the Bible just being read to us. Um, I, I just think we've perhaps lost a little bit of kind of the art, the skill maybe, of just listening to the Bible being read over us and responding accordingly. So I, I think maybe if there was another reason that I was so wrapped in my attention is because um, I don't know if you guys have had the opportunity to rub shoulders with Jean before, the Jean Boatman that was just up here reading. Um, her life is a testimony of God's transformation, of a powerful God relentlessly pursuing her when she had recklessly run from him, he kept chasing her down. And her life is just such a beautiful story of gospel transformation that then to have her be the one speaking the words of Jesus over us made it all the more incredible for me to experience. So uh, anyway, that's a, that's a powerful text. Really grateful, Gene, for what you brought to us. Um, so the text, um, it's a heavy one, right? It's it's a lot to take in. The way that I want to approach it this morning is I think to get behind why Jesus was bringing it to his people. So what happens in chapter 23 is um, he's, he's kind of closed the book on his confrontations with the religious leaders. The last word came at the end of last chapter, chapter 22, where they had this questioning him and confrontation of him and he finally turned the question around to them, well, who do you say that I am kind of a thing? And when they just absolutely reject him, it's like case closed on that. And, and now it's time to talk to his people. At the beginning of chapter 23, you see he's talking to the crowds and to his disciples really about those leaders. And they're still there. They're still in their little pockets and scattered around the crowds. But he's no longer trying to dialogue with them. Now he's talking to the people about them. Because the next time he actually has a confrontation with them is going to be in a couple chapters in chapter 26 when they're actually hauling him off to kill him. So between now and then, Jesus is going to be talking to his disciples and to all those that would follow him about those guys, but his days of trying to win them are over. That book is closed and now he's just going to talk to us about them. So I think we need to lean in and ask, what, what does Jesus say about appropriate leadership? These are the guys who have been in leadership. They hold positions of leadership. They've, they've held that position of leadership for generations. But Jesus is now critiquing that. And I think it's going to give us the opportunity to say, okay, according to Jesus, how do we measure leadership? What makes a man or woman worthy of following? Why should we line up under certain leaders and not under other leaders? Um, I actually had some moments to think about that, that general question because I'm, I'm a little bit of a dabbler in history. Some of you guys are history buffs and read tons of history, and I, I envy that. I wish I had more of that knowledge. I'm kind of a dabbler, but I, I read some history, and I've been uh, reading one recently, but some of the ones that I've especially liked are anything by Candace Millard. I don't know if you've read any of her books, but man, The Killing of President Garfield, phenomenal. Anyway, anything by Candace Millard, I really get into these kind of historical novels. Um, endurance, you know, the, the story of Shackleton trying to get across the South Pole. Um, anything by David McCullough. If you guys haven't read 
Um, Bonhoeffer, the story of Diedrich Bonhoeffer by Eric Metaxas, phenomenal uh, biography and historical uh, novel. He, the reason I maybe especially lean toward the Bonhoeffer era is because that's a World War II era history person. And um, my dad actually was part of the European theater in World War II as a paratrooper into uh, the Western theater there. And so I find myself especially gravitating towards stories that surround where my dad was and, and the story of his life and all that. So anyway, all that to say, I know it's a long intro. I'm trying to get to a point here. I've been reading this book recently called The Volunteer. It just came out. You guys, this story is amazing. This, this book is about this dude, Witold Polecki. He's a Polish guy who, upon the invasion of the Nazis, started figuring out, along with some other people, that there was this new camp called Auschwitz. And he started figuring out that something about what was going on in Auschwitz was going to be critical to the whole movement of Nazism. And he volunteered to infiltrate into Auschwitz as a prisoner. Voluntarily got himself falsely thrown into Auschwitz so that he could be an insider and get word to the Western world of what was going on in there. Not even knowing the extent of the atrocities that were about to unfold in front of his eyes. So reading this book, I'm telling you, watching this guy just put his life on the line, true story, and, and how that ended up changing the course of things. I'm just saying, I read accounts like that, and I like reading those kind of things because I want to be like that. You know what I mean? Like it stirs something in you and you, you say, I want to be selfless like that. He was somewhat of a nobody, just a, a, a citizen who suddenly saw something going wrong and just stepped up and I want to learn what it is to be selfless, what it is to be sacrificial, how to have that kind of noble character, right? Because guys, all of us have this, this tendency, I believe a God-given tendency, to want to follow others, to follow leaders, right? All of us want, in fact, even if you find the greatest of leaders, you know what you find? They write books about the guys that they're following, right? In fact, one of the things that makes a great leader is they learn to follow other great leaders. In fact, I, I got so discouraged with kind of the current landscape of a lot of things on all sides of the political spectrum that I read a couple of books, um, one by Senator McCain and one by President uh, Kennedy, both of whom wrote books about the guys that shaped their lives and made them the kind of heroic figures that they are. Because I'm just like, I need some heroes. I need some heroes who's, who's out there that I can really follow, right? We have this tendency, but we got to watch that tendency because sometimes our barometer is off and we start following the wrong people. We have such a tendency to follow that we have to be careful because sometimes we find ourselves almost blindly following the wrong kind of leader and that has huge dire consequences to us. So guys, what I'm trying to say by all that, Jesus is going to help us today to, to recalibrate our barometer and find the right kind of leaders to follow. He's going to do that actually by pointing out the wrong kind of leaders don't follow these kind of guys, but all we have to do is kind of turn that upside down, take the anti-type, turn it upside down, and we're going to discover what Jesus actually wants, what he's commending of, of how we could follow, how we can find those, those leaders. So what we're going to do, guys, is we're going to start with the human leaders. That's what he starts with in the first end of the chapter. We're going to end up looking at his leadership right at the very end. 
In between is a whole bunch of really powerful stuff. Gene just read it for us. We're actually going to skip. I actually taught this same passage actually as it's brought to us from the Gospel of Luke back in February. So if you want more elaboration in the stuff in between what I'm going to be giving, just go online and grab the, the Luke version of this from back in February and you can get that. But here's what I want to do. I want to focus right now on, on the human leaders of God's church and what he expects. So that's on the front end of Matthew 23. If you've got a Bible or if you've got your app, why don't you go to Matthew 23. Um, if you want a Bible, we have these available again uh, out there in the foyer. You can grab one. But let's, let me read for you again those first few verses of Matthew 23. It says, Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples. The scribes and the Pharisees are seated in the chair of Moses. So therefore, do whatever they tell you. Observe it. But man, be careful. Don't do what they do because they don't practice what they teach. <laughs> okay, I, I'm going to hit pause because here we've come across the first way to start identifying the right kind of leader. Again, it's by looking at the anti-type, the wrong kind of leader, and flipping it upside down. The right kind of leader never stops being changed by the Bible, okay? Here's what he's going to say. This is not what they're doing, so what to look for? And the opposite of that, look for the kind of leaders that never stop being changed by the Bible. Uh, read over that as you have it in front of you. Understand, Jesus is not condemning them for not knowing their Bibles or for not being able to teach their Bibles. They actually know their Bibles well and can teach their Bibles well. That's not the problem. The problem is they're unchanged by the Bible. <laughs> and so Jesus is like, hey, every time they open the book and start teaching, you should lean in. A lot of the people in Jesus' day are illiterate. They can't read for themselves. And so, hey, lean in when they open the Bible and start reading. Lean in, listen to them. When they start teaching, go ahead, lean in, because they're going to bring you Moses' words, the Old Testament words. Go ahead and lean in. But don't follow them home, okay? Don't follow them home because you're going to be really disappointed when they don't actually practice anything that they have just taught you to do. It's horrible. So what we need to do is look for leaders who are truly changed by the Bible. They're not unteachable like the scribes and the Pharisees. They are actually very teachable. I've got a couple passages I want to point out, and I'll have them on the screen for you so you can uh, find them without having to flip too much. Psalm 1 is the first one. These are a couple passages that should mark the kind of leaders that Jesus is describing, I think. Psalm 1, how happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction. He delights in it. He meditates on it day and night. And in fact, he's like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. So I love this imagery. I'm, I'm kind of a tree guy. And um, so every time I read this, I think of um, the Iowa tree. You guys know what the Iowa tree is? The state tree? Anybody know? It's the oak. In fact, it's not just, you know, one specific oak. It's just the oak. So it's all varieties of oak, which is awesome because we get to pick all of them. So uh, thankfully, my wife and I, we, we were able to sell our house back in Ames. We just bought a house in Iowa City, so eager to get, get into our house. And one of the, probably 90% of the reason I really dug this house 
it's got this massive oak tree in the front yard and it is just so beautiful. It's like got this huge canopy and this just perfect cylindrical trunk. It's just this gorgeous oak. So then I started looking, man, I wonder how old these things are. How old do oaks get in, in Iowa? So I started doing all this more information than you would care about, but you're going to get it. Um, you guys, some of the oak trees in Iowa live over 400 years. The oldest ones are over 400 years old. Get this, when that thing was a sapling, Galileo was just laying down some of the things he was discovering about our galaxy. That's how old some of these trees are. 150 years before this would even be a country, oaks were growing in my yard. <laughs> no, <laughs> mine probably isn't that old, but I want to pretend. Okay, but I'm just saying these oaks are... But here's the thing. When you look at that oak in my future front yard, please, Lord, um, you're going to see it's just full of life. It might be a couple hundred years old, but it is just full of life and it's ever changing and it's got new branches coming out and every spring there's new leaves coming out, right? Because it's just, it, it's found the right kind of soil that its roots have just found home, right? And it's found a water source down there that can just drink, continue love. Here's the psalmist is trying to say, the kind of people that you should look for are the people who are just alive with God's word. It's constantly nourishing them constantly transforming them. They're ever growing, ever changing. They're not static. Trees aren't just static like, like metal or made out of just concrete or something. They're vibrant and full of life. They're just pulsing with life. So continually in the word, okay? One other passage that should mark a true leader, the antitype to what Jesus is describing the scribes and Pharisees. Hebrews chapter four. Let me read Hebrews four. This one will be on the screen as well. Verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able, the word of God is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In fact, no creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Here's what I'm saying. You want to find leaders out there that are constantly being laid open by the word. Like when, when you get around them, you understand that God has recently convicted them of something, shown them something that they have never seen before, constantly laying them bare before the eyes of him to whom they must give an account, right? Because they're constantly aware that every time they open that Bible, it's not so much to use as a weapon or a tool to shape other people. It's like a mirror reflecting back into themselves and they are first and foremost transformed. Then they're able to turn around and teach others how to be transformed by that same book, right? So when we're, and, and this is really pertinent. If you're a member of Veritas, I hope many of you are, um, we're going to be talking about, in a few weeks, reappointing or, or agreeing upon the leadership, the elders of this church. And what I'm, de what I'm describing here, this isn't just like in a lab somewhere. We're, we're saying this is the kind of stuff that we need to put into practice and have the kind of leaders that exhibit what Jesus is describing here. So it makes me a little nervous, actually, <laughs> right? Because I'm actually handing you the tools by which you're, in a few weeks, going to scrutinize me and my fellow leaders, and rightly so. Okay, second thing, back in Matthew 23. So these are the kind of people we want to follow. They never stop being changed by the Bible. Secondly, they serve those in need. Look at verse four. They serve those in need. The anti-type, the bad guys, here's what's true of them, verse four. They tie up heavy loads that are just hard to carry. And they, they put them on people's shoulders 
But they themselves, they aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. Guys, I don't know why this is. But in our world, in our culture, leadership always seems to draw people up and away and out of touch with the common man, right? Leadership just tends to make people feel like they, like to demonstrate that they're climbing the ladder of success in leadership is to somehow become more and more detached from the kind of people out of whom they have just risen, right? And what I'm saying is that is completely opposite, not so among Jesus' people. In fact, back in chapter 20, he said that exact thing. Back in chapter 20, verse 25, he said this. Jesus called his disciples over to him and he said, look, you, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over people, you know? They're in high positions and they act as tyrants over people. Obviously, nothing new under the sun, right? He's describing what was true back in his day. You know the way this works, right? Leaders just want to crush those under them. They want to rule. They want to have power. They want to have raw authority, right? So you get that. And then he says this, it must not be like that among you, okay? Verse 26, it must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servants, and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. As I was thinking about this and asking God to help me internalize this, I was reminded of one of the greatest gifts that I have as a Christian, and that is that when I first gave my life to Christ back at the University of Northern Iowa, um, was a guy to disciple me that actually helped me learn this stuff even before I had read it in my Bible. So he, his name's Tom Hammond, and uh, he was always trying to help me embrace servanthood. So one of the things he had me do was start a window washing business with him. And so we had to go wash all these windows. And in some ways, I, I remember thinking, aren't you distracting me? I'm supposed to be this campus guy. I'm supposed to be on campus winning the world of Christ, you know? I'm out here, you know, in northern Iowa, middle of winter, we're at these high V's. We're having to add like half rubbing alcohol, half water to keep everything from freezing as we're out there, you know, scrubbing these windows. And I remember when we had to re-roof the ministry house that we had there called the greenhouse. We had to re-roof it. Tom was the first one there every morning, you know, carrying the shingles up on his shoulder, getting me to work. Everything that he did was teaching me, you serve, you serve. But more than that, not just serving in general, serving people in need. I remember there was a, a, a veteran, an older guy in our church family that needed frequent trips down to the VA hospital down here in Iowa City, and he needed somebody to bring him down and help him along and help him in and get him to his appointments, and Tom put me in charge of that. And I remember, seriously, at times like, Tom, I'm supposed to be on campus. I'm supposed to be leading this whole ministry. I'm supposed to be Mr. Director of the, you know. Nope. I'm driving across town to pick up this dude, take him down, hear his war stories, walk him through the VA, bring him. You know what I mean? Here's what I'm saying. Early on, I had like a baby bird. I was being imprinted by Tom Hammond, who was saying, you know, some leaders want to just make it to the top and think maybe they don't have time for piddly stuff or they don't have time to serve those in need. Let's let other people do it. No, no, no. Like Jesus, not so among you. <laughs> not so among you. 
If you're truly going to be a leader, you're going to serve. You're going to lead out by serving more than anybody else. That's the mark of biblical leadership, right? The antitype to that, the ones Jesus is talking about, they wouldn't lift a finger to help. They'll point out all your problems, but they're not going to help you with them. Jesus is trying to say, you serve those in need of help. The last thing that he gives us, so we look for leaders who never stop being changed by the Bible. They serve those, especially those in need. And then verse 5. The bad guys, they do everything to be seen by others. <laughs> that's their goal, to be seen. They enlarge their phylacteries. Okay, so that's a weird word. I got to explain that. So what they would do is phylacteries are, they, they would um, write out portions of the Bible, usually like Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is the God, the Lord is the they'd, they'd take these different passages, they'd roll them up on little scrolls, put them in these leather cases, tie leather strips to them, and then fasten them, like tie them onto their foreheads. And some of them got really good, and they wanted you to know they had a lot of Bible in there, so these phylacteries would just get huge. They'd be walking around like tipping over practically with these massive like leather cases of bound up Bible like wearing the Bible. Now, it wasn't affecting them. It should have soaked down into their hearts and souls and lives. Nope, it was encased in leather on their foreheads, right? And these tassels were tassels off of their robes. They were like prayer tassels. And man, if you really want to be holy, like look at how long these tassels are. Man, I pray all day long, right? So, so he's just saying they just want the look of spirituality, right? So they enlarge their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels and they just love that place of honor at banquets. Oh, look, there's a rabbi. The front seats in the synagogues. Oh, right up here, rabbi. Greetings in the marketplaces to be called rabbi by the people. Here's what I'm saying. The, the, the next level of what you look for in leadership, they humbly avoid spotlight. They humbly avoid Spotlight. They're not looking for the spotlight, trying to run into the spotlight. They're actually so busy serving that they're almost unaware if the spotlight hits them <laughs> because that's not what they're looking for. That's not, that's not their aspiration, right? So guys, we live in Iowa, right? Um, yes, we do. Um, because of that, over these next weeks, these next months, I promise you, the next leader of our country, whether present or future, is going to be right down the street from where you are. You are going to be able to shake hands with whoever the next leader of the free world is, right? Because we live in Iowa. They're all going to come here. They're all going to, they're all going to eat breakfast downtown. They're all, going to, like, they're all going to come to Iowa. And what are they going to do the whole time they're there? They're going to look for the spotlight. They're going to look for the headline. They're going to be doing whatever it takes to draw the attention, to draw the spotlight. Right? And then here's what's going to happen, guys. Just be ready. We're going to think we're on top of the world until Monday, February 3rd, caucus night. And I promise you the next morning, like a ghost town, like every, every hotel room that they took up, every, all the press, all that, they're going to be like, Iowa, is that where you grow potatoes? And we're going to go right back to obscurity. Iowa's going to go right back to obscurity, right? But for right now, all these candidates are going to come and they're going to try to get you there in the rallies and right? they're going to be like trying to get the spotlight everywhere. We get what that's like. Here's what I'm saying. Not so among the leaders of God's people. You don't look around waiting for the band, waiting for the limelight. Not so among you. You're so busy serving, you don't even know if the spotlight hits you. I've got a picture of, of one of my heroes I want to show you. Um, Joe Kalunga. So Joe Kalunga 
is one of my dearest friends on this planet. And the reason being that even by Zambian, he's a Zambian, even by Zambian standards, he lives in obscurity. So he leaves his family to be cared for in the little boma of Serenje where we work because he wants to serve a village so far out there, so far removed, that he doesn't even dare take his family because they have a disabled son and he wouldn't be able to get the kind of care that he would need. So he hoofs it back and forth over the, you can't imagine, he has to traverse this river on a rope like this as he goes across. Crazy. Um, you know why he does that? Because he is serving a village that everybody else has forgotten about. There's a whole bunch of people in need. One of the greatest needs is water. And he's trying desperately, in fact, he's kind of roped me and a couple of guys into helping him rightly help just bring water, water to this village where children can't even get safe drinking water and sickness is everywhere. And nobody's going to know. In fact, if I hadn't told you about Joe Kalunga right now, you would never know his name. He's never going to be in the headlines. You're never going to, no books are going to be written about Joe Kalunga. But I'm telling you, every, as I was reading this, I was like, that's my model. That's my hero. That's what I want to be. So preoccupied with the need, everything else comes second. I'm not looking for the camera, the spotlight. I'm looking for how to serve. In fact, what Joe teaches me is by humility, I find joy in serving Christ and his people if no one ever knows, <laughs> right? So taken all together, here's what I was saying. Taken all together, Leaders in the church are to be people who are continually shaped by their Bibles, serving those in need, and are joyfully humble before God. Like if you want Jesus' definition of the right kind of leadership, and Veritas, even as you're looking to the future elders of this church, people who are continually shaped by their Bibles, serving those in need, and joyfully humble before God. Now, here's what I want to do. That's from the human perspective, looking kind of horizontally at human leaders. At the very end of the chapter, we get a great glimpse at the true leader of the church, Jesus Christ. So as much as we want noble, heroic, worth following kind of leaders here on this earth, and we do, ultimately we want them just pointing us to the true leader of the church, Jesus Christ. And so look at the very last verses of chapter 23 with me. Look at verse 37 again. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing and if you've got a Bible, I think even underlining, you were not willing. So see, your house has left you desolate. And I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because it's so poignant, even the way he talks to collectively Jerusalem. So, uh, Jesus is a Jew. <laughs> I know, shocker. Jesus is a Jew. I actually had to explain that to a guy I led to Christ one time. That was just such a joy. 
He's like, wait, why is Jesus always going into those synagogues and into that temple? What's he doing? And I was like, what? And somebody else in our group said, well, Cam, Jesus was a Jew. He goes, what? <laughs> so that, and I go, Cam, I'll blow your mind even more. All of his disciples, all of them Jews. He's like, no way. And then he goes, wait a minute. So when did Jesus become a Christian? <laughs> Seriously, in that moment, there's times you can really stump me. I was like, too much. We'll have to come back to that. Anyway, just blew. I didn't even know how to answer it. Anyway, but I digress. That story just came to mind. So here's Jesus. And as a good Jewish man understood deeply how to use the Hebrew language. In the Hebrew language, uh, when you wanted to bring emphasis, you repeated things. So it's, Hebrew is a very kind of untechnical language. It's not very grammatically technical. You can do, play with it to bring emphasis. So some of the things you, you repeat it. When you repeat a name, it's, it's almost always to evoke emotion, strong emotion. Okay, so I want to give you some examples. Abraham takes Isaac up to the altar. When God calls out to his dear friend, he calls Abraham, Abraham. He repeats his name so as to pull him in in intimacy, right? Um, when Jacob, uh, scoundrel Jacob, <laughs> is, is messing around and stumbling around, God calls out to him, Jacob, Jacob. And it's, it's to evoke emotion, right? Moses at the burning bush. Moses, Moses, I'm calling you into relationship. Here's, here's one that's maybe especially poignant. Do you remember David had a son, Absalom, who not only rebelled against him, rebelled against the whole nation, tried to have his father, did excommunicate his own father off the throne and tried to assume the throne, all this stuff, horrible. And then as the atrocities continue to unfold, Absalom himself is killed in battle. And when David finds out, I mean, he's just so grief-stricken by everything. He's just being pummeled by all the bad news. And all of a sudden, when he heard about Absalom, you remember what he called out? Absalom, Absalom, oh my son, Absalom. And he just falls into a heap of tears and despair. Understand, bring all that weight uh, that's just a sampling. It's true throughout the Old Testament. And here's Jesus standing and looking at Jerusalem. 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 I have loved you so fiercely. I have poured out my heart and my love to you so often. I have called you and called you and called you Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Like, like a hen trying to gather her chicks. Why? For protection, right? They're vulnerable. A any almost small animal could take them. No, no, no. Come under my wings for protection, for warmth, for security, for just nearness. I, I so wanted to gather you and you just would not. You would not. So there you are. As 
as fierce as Jesus' love was for them, so fierce was their hatred of him. They, they rejected him. You would not. So, here's what he's saying. All right, I'm giving you over to what you want. So, you want life without me? I've been holding and pulling and drawing and sending. You want life without me? There you go. Your house is left to you empty. Without me, without my protection, without my love, without my nurture, your house is left to you desolate. Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So he's actually referring to a very near destruction that's going to happen to Jerusalem. You can see that in chapter 24 right away. I mean, there's an unfortunate chapter break because he's going to say, hey, guess what? Hey, Jerusalem, your walls and that temple, because the only thing holding those enemies back right now, Jerusalem, is me. I am the one who's been holding back all of your enemies and protecting you and nurturing you. You will be flattened. But he's actually pointing even more for all of us to a greater day. That destruction of Jerusalem is actually just a shadow of a coming day that honestly most people, like the people in Jerusalem, thought would never come. Oh, God would never allow us to be destroyed. Oh, God, no, we're God's people. This is God's temple. Oh, we're, we're good. We're safe. And in the same way, our whole world almost refuses to believe that there's going to come a day where we're going to have to get an account. And so in 2 Peter chapter 3, he says this. He says, you know what? The Lord does not delay his promise. As some of you are understanding delay, no, here's how to understand it. It's patience. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He's not wanting you to perish, but to, for all of you to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The day of the Lord will come. The fact that it hasn't come yet is not an indication that it's not coming. It's an indication that he's still being patient, that he's still crying out, Gene, Gene, come. Ryan, Ryan, come. Right? He's, he's calling out your name, my name. He's calling out, asking us, please come. I want to protect you. I want to nurture you. I want to be your security. I want to be your savior. I want to be your deliverer. Unfortunately, many will say, I will not. I will not. In fact, some will say on that day, but Lord, Lord, that same double like, no, we're good, right, Jesus? Lord, Lord, didn't we? But, but Lord, Lord, I... And Jesus will say, I never knew you. 
I never knew you. Depart from me. Your house is left to you desolate. Here's what I want to say, guys. We, we saw a glimpse of what our human leader should be. Here's a glimpse at what the true leader of the church is supposed to be. Here's the definition I think that we should grab. The true leader, Jesus Christ of our church, relentless in his love for us and his pursuit of us, but he's not to be trifled with. Jesus is relentless in his love for us, his pursuit of us, but don't mess with him. He's not to be trifled with. I know that's kind of an old quirky word, trifled with. You're like, oh, what a weird word, trifled with. Here's what I mean, made little of. Just, it's a trifling. I, I don't have to think that much about it. Um, so I, I, I hesitated to use this illustration, but I'm gonna use it anyway. So last night, my son gave me this awesome gift. He took me to the Jones County Fair last night. You guys been to the Jones County Fair? What? What is it about Eastern Iowa? You got all these little hidden secrets and gems like Jones County Fair. So we get to go see Chris Stapleton. Chris Stapleton at the Jones County Fair? Are you kidding me? Anyway, I think he might be one of the, honestly, greatest musicians uh, on the planet. Greatest songwriters, musicians. I don't even like country music. His thing, because it's a bluesy kind of, anyway, enough about Chris Stapleton. He had um, phenomenal, but but he had this opening act, and uh, I wasn't in, it was a little bit more of a kind of twangy country. So I wasn't as in, into his opening act, but he had one song that I just, I could not get out of my head. It's called Closer to Hell. Here were the words. I've got one foot in the fire, the other one's on the way. I'm one day closer to hell. And it's this really kind of kind of do the, you could even do the, like the two-step to it or something. Like it's that, it's that really kind of popping, like really fun. Like you'd be one step closer to hell. Like, and the reason it shocked me is I'm like, you know, the distance, the distance between the lyrics and this poppy little dance song. The reason I'm bringing that up is that's what we do. You guys, we make a trifling of the reality of Jesus actually coming back and facing him. And there are two groups that will, on that day, and it will come, just like the people in Jerusalem in 70 AD thought, oh, that can never happen to us. No, that day is coming to, for all of us, okay? And on that day, Jesus will come, and there's two groups of people that will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those who have loved him, repented of their sins, embraced him while they were here on this earth are going to open their arms and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord because we're going there to be gathered up and taken home to a place that he's prepared for us. The other ones will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord out of finally being compelled to say it even though it is actually your death sentence. Finally admitting, finally admitting after it's too late. Guys, the reason I bring that heavy word to you is because Jesus is trying to compel us. The, his crucifixion is like right over the bow of the hill right here, okay? And he's trying to say to us, I'm gonna leave you some leaders that you, you need to follow. They're gonna point you to, to me. Don't follow the bad guys, follow the good guys, and I'm gonna tell you how, okay? But ultimately, they're gonna be pointing you to me. That's what Jesus is saying. Ultimately, 
Those leaders, if they're doing their job, they're gonna point you to me. And I wanna say to you, oh guys, come to Christ. He's not to be trifled with. But right here, right now, he is calling your name, begging for you to draw near to him. And he wants so desperately to draw near to you. So what I want to do is just close our time by praying that out together. So let's, let's close up our Bibles. Will you stand with me? And I just want us to pray that out. Jesus, your word is powerful. Thank you that for a few moments we, we just got to hear your word just spoken to us. And without me ever adding a word, Lord, your word is powerful and it, it got us. We, we heard you. And now for all of us, Lord, your arms are extended. Your invitation has gone out and you're looking at us in the eyes. And you're asking, will you come? Will you come? Jesus, I'm so grateful that you have such relentless love. People like Gene and Doug, people like me, you were so patient, you waited so long. Jesus, let this be the day where many around this room right now are hearing their name, seeing, seeing, seeing like the fierceness of your love for them, your pursuit of them, and they're done running, and they're saying, yes, Jesus, yes. Make it so, Lord, and as we fill this place with worship, let it be from surrendered hearts, <laughs> just people who are truly in love with you, who see you for exactly who you are and embrace you with all of our might. Let us sing, Lord, sing to you because you are so, so worthy. We love you, Jesus. Amen.